Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that the Apostle Paul, when he was ready to depart what he thought was departing the earth, and he talked to the elders at the church at Ephesus, he commended them to the word of your grace that it would impart to them everything that they needed. And we just approach your word this morning, Father, looking for impartation. I thank you your presence is here amongst us, and I thank you, Father, that you are going to speak to every heart according to your will and according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to um, start a little series this morning. It, I may get it finished next week, and it may just be a, something I pick up whenever. Um, but I want to talk about how do we live victoriously. <clears throat> you know, it's, um, if, if you all, well, you all know, Gina's difficulties, December 10th, just fell out, major heart attack. Within, you know, if, if um, Kathy hadn't been with her, she'd have been dead in three minutes. Fortunately, she survived, and um, I believe she's thriving. Speak health to her body every day, multiple times a day. But you know, from December 10th to today, hasn't been the most fun experience I've ever had in my life. There's been days when you want to despair. There's been days when you just absolutely exhausted and worn out, and yet in the midst of it, I've walked in victory. She's walked in victory. I believe that. And I've even felt it at times. Now, there are times when you feel like, you know, Lord, just I want to slip my throat and go on, go home. You know, rapture, this is a good day for the rapture because I'm tired. Have you ever noticed that when you're tired, you, you really pray hard for the rapture? It's, it's, it's a sanctified version of suicide. Basically, it's what it is. It's, uh, and I, I'm not being harsh, but it's, it's, it's I'm, I'm tired and I want to quit, and that's not good. Um, but we can live victorious, but victorious living, and, and please hear me on this. This is, probably, this is going to be one of the more important things I say this morning. Victorious living cannot be gauged by your circumstances at the moment. If that's what you're looking at, determining, am I living a victorious life, then you're going to be in and out, up and down. Your life's just going to, you're going to be miserable because your circumstances are, are subject to the attack of the enemy. One of the problems I have had with, with Christianity over the years, it kept me out of the church for many years, was, and I call this, please, I, you know, I don't blame this on Calvin. A lot of Calvinists today are more Calvinistic than Calvin was. But one of the forms of Calvinism today wants to attest and, and, and assert that every event in your life has been filtered through the fingertips of God, and that is God's will for you at the moment, and it doesn't matter what it, what's happening. That's God's will for you. And I'm sorry, but that's just not right. John 10.10 says that we, the, we have a, there is a thief and we have an enemy. It says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus attested right behind that. But I have come. I love that. There, we're going to look at a couple. There are a few, few places in the Bible where it says, but God or but something. I love it when God says, this is how things are, but. When God throws the but in there, you know, normally in a conversation, you know, pastor and I have words. There's a little riff, brother. I just, I, I wanted to apologize to you, but. 
When that but comes, you know, oh, forget everything that was said before because now we're getting to the truth. When God throws a but in there, what he's saying is this is, this is a fact, but I got a higher truth that I'm about to impart to you. And Jesus in John 10, 10 says there is a thief. He comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. But I have come that you might have life and that more abundantly. I like abundant life. I like more abundant life even more than abundant life. But you can't, you do have an enemy. And he's going to attack you and do his best to steal from you and destroy you and your stuff and kill you ultimately. And if he can't kill you physically, he's going to do his best to kill your witness and just make you miserable. How do I get off or, or, or get over that? How do I live above that? Well, there are several steps. Number one, and this is, this is my opinion, okay? When you're done, check it out in the Word. If you disagree with me, that's fine. I've been wrong more than once. I'm not afraid of being wrong, but I really do believe this is, this is um, one way to look at this. It's one way to approach this mountain. But I think the very first thing you have to do to live victoriously is you have to know what is yours and who you are. And maybe even more importantly, whose you are. Amen? Let's go, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to... I, I got six months worth of stuff rattling around in me. I just, I want to I wanna explode in a thousand directions, but I'm going to stay disciplined today in Jesus' name. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, because I want to look, first of all, well, who, is, who are we and what has Jesus given us? He said he came that we might have life and that more abundantly. Well, just the fact that he came does not mean that I have an abundant life. Something had to have happened between him coming and me getting. Let's start. We're going to look at that. Let's start in Ephesians. Always good to start at the beginning. So let's go chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. First of all, you have to know that, that Paul was, was called, but it was God's will. And we're going to have that, we're going to see that, and I've, I've preached on this before, but I'm going to go back and reiterate it. There's a calling on you. You're, you, you're not here just by accident, you're not in the earth just by accident. You're not a Christian if you are a Christian just by accident. If you're not a Christian, I'm telling you right now, God's calling you to be a Christian, but it's not by accident. <clears throat> it's on purpose. God has not, nothing has happened in the history of the universe that didn't happen by God's design and God's purpose. Now, that does not mean that the enemy's not, that, you know, the enemy's trying to foul it up and God, it's God's will. Don't. I just addressed that with the hyper-Calvinism, so don't go that far. But God has a purpose in how things are working. Best evidence right here, it's God's will that Paul is this apostle. He's writing this to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. So this letter directly was to the church at Ephesus, but notice he also put, and faithful. That could describe the, the church, but it also means that this letter is addressed to you. If you are a Christian, you are faithful. God says it, not me, not you. I don't care if you fouled up, sinned a hundred times yesterday. God says, you are faithful. Amen? Maybe you ought to say that. I am faithful. There you go. Next time you say it, believe it. Didn't sound real enthusiastic there. <clears throat> there you go. You're going to have to believe and get it in your heart that I am faithful. I'm faithful to Christ. I'm faithful to God. If you don't believe that about yourself, it's hard for anybody else to, con to, to convince you of that. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Lord Jesus Christ, first of all, God extends his grace, and with that, he extends his peace. 
And I've said it before, and I've heard, I've just heard so many people talk about this. People live, and they're miserable when you live this way. People live with the idea that God is after them. It's the the old whack-a-mole game. When we used to have um, arcades at, at the malls and stuff, you know, before everybody had their own arcade on their smartphone, um, they had this one game called Whack-A-Mole, and there were nine holes, and you had a mallet, and a little mole would pop his head up, and you had to whack him. And it happened fast, and it happened varied, and how skillful you were at whacking the mole brought your score up. Well, some people, me, at, at one point in my life, think that's how life is. If I poke my head up, God's just there to whack me. Paul said right here, God has extended his grace and his peace to you. God is not mad at you. God is not angry with you. God has no wrath reserved for you. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. And if you go to hell... It's not because God's wrath is reserved there. It's, it's because you rejected his gift. God isn't the problem with the people that decide to go to hell, and it is a decision. It's not just something that happens accidentally. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, past tense, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us. He chose you in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Again, we should be, and this doesn't mean this is how you ought to be. This means this is how you are. You are holy and without blame before him. When God looks at you, all he sees is you covered with Jesus' blood. If, if, if the, the, uh, the devil, who is the accuser, brings you before God and says, look at this dirty, rotten scoundrel. Jesus, Father sits as a judge. Jesus is our advocate. And the devil can present all of his evidence. And believe me, he looks very far in any of our closets. He finds lots of evidence. It's all there. And he presents it. The Father looks at Jesus and says, Do you have any evidence to present? And Jesus said, yes, my blood. And the father hits his gavel and said, case closed. They're holy, they're without blame. Don't care what they've done. I care about Jesus' blood. That's all I care about. His blood covered it all. That he chose us and he made us holy and without blame before him. Having predestined us to adoption. He's called us. He's called us by name, and he wants to adopt us into the family. Now, Paul wrote this during Roman times. In a Roman household, if if you are my natural child, you have certain rights, but as the father, I have the right. I own you. If you disobey me and I decide to pull out my little sword and whop your head off, guess what? Ain't nothing wrong with that. No law can stop me, and no law will punish me. I own my family. I own my children. They are mine, and they are my property until they become adults. And I can do with them as I will. But if I adopt you into my family, then you have special status. And I cannot do just anything I want to with you. You have special protection. You have special privileges. You cannot, I cannot run you off. I cannot unadopt you. That's Roman law. That's what Paul's talking about here when he says he predestined us to adoption. God pulls us in and says, you are my special child. It's not that you were born to me naturally. You weren't. You were a child of the devil. But you put yourself under Jesus' blood. You put yourself under his command. And because of that, I adopted you into my family, and I accept you, I made you holy, I made you without blame, and I will not turn my back on you ever. Ever. Will not happen. Verse 5 again. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Nobody twisted God's arm to make him do this. He wanted to do it. 
He said, it was the good pleasure of my will. I'm having fun. I'm adopting lots of kids. Now, you know, I've had my kids. I love my grandkids, but I tell you what, about four hours with my grandkids, and i got to have a nap. I'm, they exhaust me. God gives young people kids for a reason. You need the energy. But God doesn't care. God doesn't get tired. He wants a big family. He says, the more the merrier. Bring them in. Invite them in. Go to the, to the, to the, the far ends of the earth and bring in more kids for me. The party isn't big enough yet. And he keep, he's calling them in. Now, <clears throat> let's go. Well, stay there. Let me read this. This is the, the, the message version of Romans 8, verse 29 and 30. Let me just read this to you because it, it pulls out this same thought of not only did he choose us, but he's also provided stuff for us. Verse 29 of Romans 8, God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. What a thought. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The Son stands first in the line of humanity He restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in Him. After God made that decision of what His children should be like, He followed it up by calling people by name. After He called them by name, He set them on a solid basis with Himself. And then after getting them established, He stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing <coughs> what he had begun. I love that. Jesus, it, several places in the New Testament, Jesus said, I'm the Alpha, the Omega. That's exactly what Paul's describing here. I called them by name, and then I set them on a solid foundation, and then after I got them established, I stayed with them, and, and I'm going to complete everything in their life. He started it, he'll finish it, and he'll take care of everything in the middle. Amen? Now, back to Ephesians verse, or chapter 1, verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood. You need to mark that little phrase. We're going to come back to that. What we have is through his blood. And the reason I'm going to bring that out, there is a move amongst the modern church, the modern American church. I don't know how it extends around the world, but it is in our, in our country, where churches are doing away with the cross. They want to take crosses off their church because people find it offensive. They want to do away with the blood. It's like uh, uh, one of my relatives, um, she likes to eat meat, but she doesn't want to be, you know, she's, she's a, a, um, a member of PETA and not people eating tasty animals. I am a member of that version of PETA. But she's a member of PETA in that, you know, we all ought to be vegetarians. All animals ought to have human rights. We shouldn't be able to farm. We shouldn't be able to slaughter animals. We shouldn't be able to eat them. When you slit the throat and, and would look at the Old Testament, when they brought that lamb uh, or a bullock or whatever it was before the uh, priests, and they slit its throat, bled the blood out of it, and then took that blood. God is a bloodthirsty God, and there's something wrong with a God that demands blood. Well, I'm sorry, but that's wrong. God's, God set it up the way he set it up. And, and rather than, for right there, in him we have redemption through his blood. If we're not going to make a big deal out of the blood, we can't make a big deal out of redemption. And I don't know about you, but I want to get to heaven. Not today. I still got work to do. But, but without his blood, I can't get there. There is no redemption apart from the shedding of blood. Now, he goes on. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. The shedding of blood, the forgiveness of sins, and the riches of his grace are all intertwined together. You under, you, it's, it's like a, um, um, a sweater. You pull on one thread, you're liable to un, unbind the whole thing and it falls apart. You don't, you don't pull his grace, his redemption, his blood are all part of one package. Notice verse 8, which he made to abound toward us. 
in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he proposed or purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him we also have obtained an inheritance. Our redemption is not just a pie in the sky by and by. It's not just that, you know, life is hard, then you die, then you go to heaven and you get your reward. No, I have, I have obtained an inheritance. I have it today. I can walk in it today. I can walk in victory today because I've been redeemed by his blood. I've been forgiven, but he gave me everything that Jesus was and is and ever will be is mine right now. But if I don't know it, it won't do me any good. I don't care how much money you have. If you don't know you have it, it's not going to do you any good. I mean, you realize there are people, I, I'll, I'll give you an example. There are people in upstate New York right now that have millions of dollars worth of oil under their property. And the state says they can't drill to get it. They're rich, and yet they're poor. Why? Because the state won't allow them to drill, drill, a, drill a hole in the ground and suck out their money and sell it because the state knows better than what these people know. Stupid squared. But you can have that inheritance, but until you tap into it, just like a hole in the ground, an empty hole on the ground. In him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, notice this, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. This is the pattern that God has set. This is his pattern, and it's set throughout the Bible. We're going to see several examples of this pattern. We heard, we believed, and we were sealed. Amen? Not only are we sealed, but verse 14, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. In other words, he's our guarantee that this is our inheritance until Jesus comes back and we don't have to fight anymore. You know, I used to have the philosophy, life is hard and then you die. I'm not far off from that philosophy still. Life is hard. And until you die, it's still going to be hard. So the, the, the reality is, if life's real hard, go on and die. Jesus said, if you win your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life, you will gain my life. We have to die to our purposes. We have to die to our thoughts and what we think will work and start figuring out what he says we should do. That starts with who we are and what he's given us. Amen? You're there in chapter 1. Pull over real quick to, to chapter 2. Here's... Here's a part of it, verse 4, Ephesians 2, 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Right now I'm standing here in this church, but at the same time I'm seated on the throne with Christ. That's my position of authority. That's my, where my inheritance is, but everything that's there is mine. I am a king and a priest. Jesus declared it. He declared it in the book of Revelation. We are kings and priests. Hebrews says we're kings and priests according to the order of Melchizedek because that's the order that Jesus came out of, and I'm one with him. 
And if I'm one with him and I'm a king, it means I can rule and I can reign. But I have to rule and reign over my life, but I'm only allowed to rule and reign as he rules and reigns. Now that's, that's the key. And let me just take this little side thought real quick. Hold your place there in Ephesians. I'm not near done there. But go back to Genesis real quick. God planted a tree in the garden, right? And in chapter 3, the serpent came, and he said to the woman in verse 1, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said of the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Well, she didn't know what God said. And I don't know where she got confused. I don't know if she confused, got it confused. She didn't pay attention. The, the devil twisted words and made her believe that. But God didn't say you shouldn't touch it. But notice what, um, <clears throat> what Satan says. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I heard it preached all my life that that's not a true statement. That they already knew good. What they, the only thing they were going to get knew was they were going to be able to know evil. I don't think that's true. I think what, what they got when they ate of that fruit was they learned good and evil. All they had known prior to that was God, and God is good. But they had led their entire existence, and we don't know how, how old they were from when God created their bodies to the fall. There really isn't any, indi any indication of how many years passed during that time. But when they, they fell, suddenly they weren't just making decisions based on what God said to do. They were in perfect fellowship with God beforehand. When God said, do this, they did it. But now they have the ability to decide this is good and this is bad, and I'm going to do this good work. The reason I say that, some of the, the worst people in the world are people that are doing their best to do good works, but their good works don't ever work out. You want a prime example? Look at our government in Washington, D.C. They got a thousand programs for every problem in the world. And every one of them were started with the greatest intentions in the world. And they almost never work out. And they almost always make the problem they were trying to fix worse. It's just the art of government. The reason I say that, look at Jesus' temptation, and I don't have exactly where this is, but when Jesus went into the wilderness, he had fasted for 40 days. And the devil came to him when he was hungry, and he said, if you can turn the, this bread into, or this stones into bread, and eat and relieve your hunger. Now, was that a temptation? The Bible says it was. Well, let me ask you, what is wrong with a hungry man who has the ability to produce food, producing that food and eating that food? Why would God get upset with Jesus for turning stones into bread when he was starving? And believe me, at, at the end of a 40-day fast, you are at the point of starvation. You need sustenance. Why would God get upset with Jesus? Part of the clue is that Jesus made this statement on more than one occasion. I only do what I, what, what I hear, or I only say what I hear God say, and I only do what I see God do. Jesus lived his life being led by the Holy Spirit, following what God said to do not figuring out good things for him to do on his own. Making, turning the stones to bread would have been a good idea on his own. 
And even though he was the second person of the Godhead, the humanity in him did not have the right to make that decision apart from the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the sin wasn't just turning the stones into bread. The sin would have been doing an act using the supernatural power of God to do something when God didn't tell him to do it. What God wanted from Jesus was absolute, total, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, absolute submission and obedience. And the great thing is, he got it. What he wants from us is not to figure out something good to do and avoid the bad. He doesn't want us to figure out good works. He wants us to figure out what he wants us to do and do that. Because sometimes you can do the right thing, but God hasn't called you to do it, and for you that is sin. Well, how can doing right be a sin? When God didn't tell you to do it, he probably wants your energy somewhere else. And if you're expending your energies here, you can't expend them there. And that's being neglected. He's got other people called to do this. You need to do what he's called you to do. But we see a need. This is why I will be honest with you. If I see a commercial on TV and I see a, a, a fly come out of a baby's nose or I see bloated bellies and it makes me want to cry, I will not put money in it. I don't care how big the need is. Someone tries to pull on my emotions to get me to give, I cut them off. I will not give according to emotions. Why? Because my emotions are a lousy guide. And if I give according to my emotions, when God says, I want you to give over here, I may not have enough to do what God said to do because I was just going running over here doing what I thought was good. God wants us to follow him. Now, back to our program. We, we need to know who we are and what God has given us. But that's not enough there either. We also need to activate it, and we need to activate it the, the way God did. And the way God did it, you're there in, in, in Genesis 3, back up to Genesis 1.1. Notice this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's the act of creation. If you're a science person, that's the Big Bang right there. There was nothing, there was no time, there was no space, there was no energy, there was no matter. Nothing existed. And then suddenly, it all came into existence in one moment of time. That's Genesis 1.1. God created it all. And then verse 2, the earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There was some natural um, fashioning that had to go on when the earth was created. It's, it's been happening. You're going to see for six days of creation, God's going to fashion the earth. So chapter 2 is, or verse 2 here of chapter 1 is God starting this fashioning, forming the earth. And then in verse 3, it says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Now, let me throw out an alternate expression, because most people say, Well, that's when God created the sun. I don't believe that's when God created the sun. I think the sun was already in existence. Because verse um, 3 said that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, was hovering on the face of the waters. And history will tell us that, that when the earth was, was new, many, many, however many years ago, and I'm not going to argue how old the earth is, because that, that's an argument nobody's ever going to win. Um, but there, the, the earth was covered, was, had a lot of humidity, had a lot of clouds, and it, there was darkness on the face of the earth. It doesn't matter how bright the sun is, if the cloud cover is thick enough, it's dark on the face of the earth. And it says that God was hovering on that surface of the water, and God said, let there be light. I believe what he did was he started clearing up the atmosphere and let the light penetrate and shine onto the earth because he needed the light to help support all of the life that he's about to create. 
Amen? That goes along with the verse we've studied in the past in Hebrews chapter 11, where it says, By faith we understand that the worlds, or the ages, were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were, were not made by the things which are visible. God took what he had. He had already created the universe. The earth was in existence by verse 3. But God wasn't satisfied with how the earth was. It wasn't ready to support mankind. So he started framing and fashioning the physical planet of the earth. And it said he, he did that by saying, let there be light. Or in the Hebrew it says, light be. This is the thought. This is the pattern. God declared it. God spoke it. And it happened. Now... To be honest with you, my opinion about whether the earth existed, whether that's when he created the sun, doesn't matter. The pattern still holds. When God wants to do something, he speaks it out of his mouth, and it happens. That's the pattern he gets it. That's the same pattern that we saw in, there in Ephesians <clears throat> just a moment ago. We heard, then we trusted, and then we were sealed. Go back to Romans chapter 10, very familiar verse. Romans 10, starting in verse uh, 11. It says, For the Scripture says, Whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 14. How then shall we call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him on whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the, are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The hearing is all dealt with in verse 14 and 15. And I want to reverse that. If, if He gives the, the, the pattern there in 14 and 15. He said, how are they going to call on him if they haven't believed? How are they going to believe if they haven't heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach if they're not sent? So if you reverse that, you get the order that it's going. Someone has to send someone to preach so people can hear. So by hearing, they can believe. And by believing, they get saved. Apart from hearing the word... You cannot know the Word, and if you don't know the Word, you can't accept the Word and have the Word activated in your life. And let me take it even another, another um, um, step. Well, let me, let me summarize it first. According to our pattern in Genesis, God declared it. Now, for us, we hear God's declaration. We believe God's declaration. And God seals it in our lives. That's the pattern we have to follow. Amen? He preaches, we hear, we believe, we call. We have to call on the name of the Lord. And then it's sealed, we get transformed. Now, the problem with that is sometimes we look at that and we think, well, I heard the gospel. I believe the gospel. I accepted the gospel and I got saved. Well, that's great. You've entered into the family. But that's not enough for today. The pattern that God also said, when you see it, is, is the pattern of the, in the, the Hebrews in the, in the wilderness. He fed them with manna. And the manna was only good for that day. The food that you're eating, the spiritual food you're eating, the word you're eating, the word you're hearing is only good for your day. It's a now word. And if you don't have a now word for today, you don't have a now word. And if you don't have a now word, you've got past tense and it's full of worms. Doesn't mean you can't learn from your past. You should. 
But what I knew yesterday is not good enough for today. I've got different needs for today. And I need to go back, and sometimes I go back to the same word. I know I was shocked when I was at, at Ramah. I, I heard Brother Hagin say one time he had two books, and I can't remember the second one, but one of them was um, Christ the Healer by F.F. F. Bodsworth. And there was a second one. He read them through every six months. Six months, and I don't know if he did it January, June, but let's just say it. January 1, he picked up F.F. Bosworth's Christ the Healer, started reading, read it through, and then he went to the, the other one. There was another one on faith. He read it from front to back. And then come June, he did it again. And he had done it for years. Why? Because that fed his faith or fed his, his spirit for um, faith and healing. And he had need of both. <clears throat> he did it over and over and over. There are verses that you've read a thousand times, but having read it yesterday doesn't do you any good for today. You need to dig in and find out what's, for, for, what's the message for you for today and take that word and apply it to your word. And, and then Jesus says, you need to be imitators of me. So we do the same thing God says. God looked at the earth and he said, light be, and light was. He took the earth and he fashioned it and framed it. He did that through the first six days of creation. He brought different animals, different plants at different times, got it ready, and he brought them in order so that there would, the, the world could support them. And on the sixth day, he crowned all of his creation. He created Adam and Eve. We are his creation. Then he sat down and he rested. We are in the seventh day right now. We're in the seventh day of creation. <clears throat> we need to take the same pattern he did. We get a revelation of who we are, and we start declaring that. Now, I guarantee you, the first time you do it, you're probably going to think, well, pfft, that's nothing. I just had you do it a minute ago. I'm righteous. Or I'm in right standing. I forget what. I'm faithful. Yeah, there we go. I'm faithful, if, especially if your, 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 your uh, recent experience has been one of faithlessness. When you declare, I'm faithful, doesn't, it, it rings hollow. But if you want to be faithful, you're going to have to take what God says about you and start agreeing with him and declaring that. For one thing, you are not the same person that you were. If you read through, um, let's go back to Ephesians, chapter um, 2. This is what God says about us, each of us. If you're a Christian, God says, this is the truth about you. If you're not a Christian, God says, this is the truth that can be about you. But you have to jump into me first. In verse... Um, Well, let's just go to verse 1. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in, in, in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God... I love that. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Even when you were dead, God said, you're not dead anymore. I speak life into your body. I speak life into your spirit. And he recreates you and makes you born again. Not only did he speak life into you, but verse 6, he also raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's going to take ages and ages and ages and ages for God to show you how much he loves you. 
Wouldn't take me long to show you how much I love you. Because my capacity to show that runs out really quick. Well, somebody, one of the teachers I used to work with one time, I, I said something about something I had done at home for Gina, and they said, boy, you're really earning a lot of brownie points, aren't you? I said, honey, if you spent them as fast as I did, you'd realize you have to earn a lot. It's not how much you earn, it's how fast you spend. Well, we can spend it pretty quick. Amen? But it, God, is, God is unlimited, and he's going to take all eternity to prove to you how much he loves you. And it's just going to get better and better and better. And how can eternally good get better? I don't know. That's up to God to figure out how to do that. Notice verse 9. It's not of works. Well, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. That word there, the Greek word there for workmanship is poema. It's where we get our English word for poem. In other words, we are recreated according to God's word, his spoken poem. You are a poem that God composed. And Shakespeare may have been a good writer. He ain't nothing compared to God. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, notice we're getting a change of status here. We once were Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, again, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he made himself our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation." Now, we're in election season, and, and with election season, you're always going to hear, and in, in, in particular, you know, certain people, they want to break down demographics, and they're going to go after certain parts of the vote. It's, it's the new thing. Um, you know, used to be it was class politics or racial politics. Well, now every, every candidate has algorithms that they run through computers of likely voters that will support them, and they target those voters to get them out. Nothing wrong with that. Great. But we have the human race for centuries, for eons, has targeted people that were different. We have separated ourselves by, right, by race, by class, by income, by education. And God says, I'm not doing that anymore. I've got a new work. One of the ways that, that he did, he called on the nation of Israel. And he said, I'm giving you my covenant. And I want you to be a light to the world. He demonstrated that with, with um, David. When David brought the ark into to, um, Jerusalem, you had the tabernacle of David, which is different than the uh, tabernacle of Moses. The tabernacle of David, there were no boundaries between the presence of God and the people. They just put a tent up, which was more like an awning. They threw the flaps open and said, y'all come, which is southern for it's open. God's presence is available to anyone who comes. Now, the tabernacle of Moses and the tabernacle of the temple of Solomon and all the, the post-Solomon temples, if you cross certain barriers, you could lose your head because you couldn't get into the presence of God. Only the high priest could get in, and he did it very carefully. In fact, they were so careful about it, they tied a rope around his ankle so that uh, if he died when he went into the presence of God, they could drag the body out without risking somebody else going in after the dead body. But that was not God's intention. God's intention is this. I'm breaking down the wall. The Jews mistook God's intention when he gave Abraham um, circumcision. And it's not unusual that where he decide the flesh that it needed to be cut off. Because for a male, that's where seed is sown. And the significance is, and I don't mean to get too graphic here, 
But the significance is, if you are uncircumcised, your seed has to pass through flesh to be manifested. That's the good works. Whether they're good or evil, it's, if it's being sown through the flesh, it's only going to reap corruption. But if you are circumcised, then your seed is sown through blood. And if it's thrown, sown through blood, then it can reap incorruption. And the Jews looked at this and said, hey, it's all about circumcision. It's all about the outward work. Never realizing that circumcision was just an outward sign of an inward work, they thought it's just all outward. So we're something special because we've got the covenants and we've got circumcision. And so we're special and you're not. And they walled themselves off and let the world go to hell. Jonah. God called Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh. And Jonah said, no, let him go to hell. I'm not going to preach to him. And I think part of it was Jonah was a prophet, and he saw down in time and realized that this city is going to come in a years to come. It's going to come and destroy my, the city of Jerusalem. So I just soon you destroy him now, Lord, and I'm not going. Didn't work out too well with Jonah. God got him there. And he preached, and God saved the city. Amen? God has always wanted us to preach an inclusive, no discrimination message. We're not Jew. We're not Greek. We're not black. We're not white. We're not rich. We're not poor. We're not ignorant or, or educated. We are one in Christ. And when we get it in our head that all that matters to me is that I am in Christ and I need to speak his word into my life, then I can start walking out what he said to do. But it only works if I know that it's through his blood. Let me back up to Ephesians 1.7. In him we have a redemption through his blood. Leviticus 17.11 said that the life of the flesh is in the blood. So when we talk about the blood of Jesus, we're not just talking about his physical, his physical blood. We're talking about his life, the life of Christ, the, the life force of Christ, the, the, the force that, that literally could not be killed. Remember, the Romans, people have used this, you know, um, to persecute Jews for centuries. They're Christ killers. No, they're not. First of all, it was the Romans that nailed him to the cross, not the Jews. No, the Jews were in agreement with them. But not the Romans or the Jews killed Christ. No one killed him. He gave his life. They couldn't take, you could not kill the man. You could have chopped off both legs, both arms, chopped his head off, and he still would have talked to you. He could not be killed. He could only give his life. And when he said it's finished, he gave up his spirit. That's the same spirit that you have through his blood. Hebrews 9.22, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's a doctrine in... in uh, Theology called the doctrine of first mention. In Genesis 3.21, after Adam and Eve fell, God came down in the garden to look for them, said, where are you? And they were hidden. And after he spoke all of the things over him that spoke them, he walked over and he killed an animal and clothed them with the skin. He shed blood to cover their sin. Didn't totally remove sin from them, because Jesus hadn't come yet, but he did cover their sin at least temporarily, a whole lot better than, than you know, the fig leaves did. Amen? So the circumcision that we have to have is the circumcision of our heart. We have to realize that I'm not the same as I was. I am a new creature in Christ. I may have done things. I may have lived a life, but my life, what I lived is not important. What is important is who am I right now? Am I Christ Jesus in this world? Does he live in me? Does he want to use my mouth to speak his word? And if he does, I need to get in his word and find out what's the word for today. Romans chapter 8 says we, we know not how we ought to pray. 
It's the great thing about praying in the Spirit, praying in tongues. You ought to pray in tongues. Paul said it. He said, I pray in tongues more than any of you. Why would Paul brag about praying in tongues more than any of them? Because he needed to know God's will. He needed to, to work and, 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 and um, uh, exercise his spirit to where he was strong enough to withstand the forces that were coming against him. God had called him to raise up to preach the, the gospel to the Gentiles and write three-fourths of the New Testament. Of course he needed lots of energy, spiritual energy. It was an exhausting job. But that's why he did it. He prayed and got God's will on everything. And when he did it, it worked. Now, we'll close here. But this, this is our pattern. We have, our hearts have been circumcised. We have claimed Jesus' blood. So that what we ought to be doing when we can look and see, this is what God's word says. God's word says, I am healed. Well, but your body says you're not. Well, you got a choice. You agree with the word or you agree with your circumstances. If we agree with God, guess what? God's responsible to bring it to pass. It's not my word, but it's his word. If I agree with or if I disagree, then I exalt my word over his word. Does that sound familiar? Isaiah 14, 13. For you have said in your heart, this is God speaking of Lucifer, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I don't want to make too big a deal of it, but when you, when you have a revelation that this is God's will for me, and you decide that it's too hard, you can't believe it, and you declare what you believe rather than what God says about a situation, you have just lined up and done exactly what Lucifer did when he sinned in heaven. You have said, my word is higher than your word, not a position you want to be in with God. Well, people will think I'm arrogant. What if they could think? What if it mattered? What, what matters to me is what does God think of me? He set the pattern. He gave me his word. He died for me. We, we saw it in Romans. He, set, he, he, he not only set me on a firm foundation, but he got me established, and he's going to stay with me to finish it to the end. So all I got to do is just keep lining myself up, and when I find out, I got over in Isaiah 14, 13, I exalted my word above his word, then you go to 1 John 1, 9, and you say, Lord, I did it. I'm guilty. Forgive me. And he says, yep, already did. Here's my blood. Take a shower. You know, I, I took a shower yesterday. My wife is glad I took another one today. Come summertime, sometimes I have to take two or three a day. Why? Because I had have a tendency, my flesh has a tendency to get smelly if I don't clean it. Well, my flesh is always that way. And I have to, and I'll close with this thought, Paul in Ephesians, I think it's in chapter 5, maybe in 6, where he's talking about um, marriage, it's in chapter 5. He said, it's through the washing of the water of the word. If you don't want your flesh to stink, you're going to have to wash it with the water of the word. And when God speaks that now word to you, then you need to speak it out. Now, I'll be honest with you. It may, sometimes it may take you a month to get a word. But if you get a word from God, believe me, I, I, know, I know ministries and ministers and individuals that have lived their entire life off one word from God. One word. It's carried them. For years and years. Is it worth waiting? Is it worth doing it? Yeah. Wait on God. You've got his written word. Just start practicing that. And when you screw up, go jump under the blood, take a shower, get your flesh, quit stinking, come back out, start over again. And don't let the devil convince you that you are not faithful, that you are not righteous, because you are. How do I know that? Because God said it. God said it. 
It's not my idea. I don't work for Ford. Wish I had the paycheck from some of the guys I know work at Ford. But <clears throat> when God says it, all I can do is agree with it. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.